Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, I'll be joined by my colleague on the Irish Times foreign desk, David McKechnie, who'll tell me about his meeting last week with the former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, who was in Ireland to receive the Tipperary International Peace Award. And we'll hear a short interview Dave conducted with Mr Santos during his visit to Tipperary Town on Friday. But first, it's the story that has featured most prominently on our show throughout the year and continues to dominate the news agenda, and that's of course Brexit. Since our last podcast a week ago, the big development was the deal reached between Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, and the EU's Chief Negotiator, Michel Barnier, on the terms of the UK's withdrawal from the EU next March. That was a major breakthrough, but it remains to be seen if Mrs May can get the deal approved by the House of Commons. With an EU summit due to take place next Sunday, talks have now moved to another stage of Brexit, and that is the relationship that Britain will have with the EU after its exit from the bloc, and in particular after a period of transition comes to an end. Full-scale negotiations on the future relationship won't begin until after Britain leaves in March, but the aim of both sides is to have an outline agreement in place in time for this weekend's summit quite a lot to pick our way through there, so I'm very glad to be joined on the line by both our London editor Dennis Staunton and from Brussels by our Europe editor Patrick Smith. Paddy, in Brussels, I'll start with you. A lot of people might be confused by the process here. We have a withdrawal agreement that's not yet ratified by either side. That's the deal that Theresa May brought back last week. And now talks are focused on the future relationship. Can you explain the sequence of events here and and why things are being done in this way? Yes, well, the British have made very clear from the start that they couldn't possibly agree to a withdrawal agreement unless they had a clear sense of what the shape of their future relationship with the European Union would be. And so it had been agreed that that a political declaration would go alongside and get approved alongside the uh, withdrawal agreement. That's what they're working on at the moment. It's a much shorter document. It's a political document rather than a legal text. The withdrawal agreement is actually a a treaty uh, and it runs to 585 pages. The political declaration runs to seven or eight at the moment, probably 20 by the time they finish tinkering with it this, this week. So that's what Mrs. May will come over here tomorrow to talk to Mr. Juncker about, because she thinks that she can get a better... Uh, better sell for her withdrawal agreement proposal uh, if if the political declaration uh, represents uh, an ambitious form of future relationship, which uh, uh, it, it, she thinks it'll help her her case. Now, the withdrawal agreement, though, as you say, it's a treaty and does run to 500 plus pages. That covers, I think, three things essentially, citizens' rights, the divorce bill and, and the Irish border. But this, the political declaration they're now discussing on the future relationship, what kind of areas does that cover? Well, two main areas. One is, is trade and the trading relationship. And there, there's talk of a, a free trade deal, uh, a la, uh, much like what the Canadians have with, with uh, the European Union. But... Uh, there is a very strong uh, but, and that is that there must be a considerable regulatory alignment between the EU and uh, the UK in future. That's the bit that's probably most problematic for Mrs May. Uh, And the other part of the agreement refers to security cooperation. And basically, uh, there is a hope on both sides that they can reach some kind of an agreement on the stand, um, uh, on maintaining current levels of security cooperation, both internal and uh, external security. And and Dennis in London, Theresa May gave an interview to Sky News at the weekend in which she emphasised that it's not the withdrawal deal 
for which he's taking a lot of stick, but it's the future relationship talks that will define the kind of Brexit that British people get. There's what you might, might be called the leaving part of the deal, and then there's the future relationship, the future uh, deal that we're going to have with the European Union. What that future deal does is delivers on the vote that people gave us in the referendum in 2016. It delivers a Brexit that brings back control of our money, our laws and our borders. It means we bring an end to free movement once and for all. For example, no jurisdiction of the court, European Court of Justice. That's the future. That delivers on Brexit for people. There's been some controversy and concern about the leaving part of the deal and about this thing called the, uh, the backstop or the insurance policy for Northern Ireland. Uh, but that will only be temporary. The focus this week will be on the future relationship. And you know, when we were in the House of Commons, a number of uh, members of Parliament were saying, we want some more detail on that future relationship. That's what we're working on this week. But it's the future relationship that delivers on the Brexit vote. It's the future relationship that actually says this is the right deal for the future of our country. Given what she said there, um, what does she hope to get from these talks on, on the future relationship? What, what are her priorities? What she's hoping really is to get enough in terms of the uh, future relationship to persuade some of her reluctant Conservative MPs uh, that they can back the deal. Because as things stand now, more than 50 Conservative MPs have signed a pledge which would appear to be inconsistent with voting in favour of her deal. So what she's hoping is that this will uh, put some uh, flesh on, uh, on, on the prospect of the kind of future relationship they can get, that it will say all kinds of things about, uh, as Paddy was mentioning, things like security, that would also uh, promise a good economic arrangement, but make clear that, uh, as Michel Barnier said during the week, that the UK will make its rules and the EU will make its own rules. And so that, it, you know, that she's hoping that this will provide both encouragement in terms of the deal being better than it appeared just on the basis of the withdrawal agreement, but also providing reassurance for Eurosceptics who until now have been reluctant to back the deal. Um, but are, are her sort of detractors not likely to say that this, um, the political declaration will merely point to a future in which Britain remains locked in some kind of customs arrangement with the EU? Yes, and her argument there is that, uh, that, that these arrangements, uh, that basically what the future uh, framework is supposed to be all about, this political declaration, is what's going to replace either uh, the transition period where everything remains the same after Britain leaves uh, the European Union for a couple of years, uh, or a backstop arrangement which would keep Britain in a customs union with the EU. What she's saying is that actually, uh, you know, this, we're, we're now going to sketch out what this future relationship will be, which will not involve any more alignment with the EU than we want. And so it's suggesting, you know, so she, she will suggest to them that any other kind of arrangements, whether it's the transition or a backstop, they're going to be temporary and that this is going to sketch out the prospect of a, a deal which will uh, fulfil Britain's desire to leave the European Union, to take, as she would say, control of borders, of money and of laws, and that it nonetheless will protect uh, Britain's economic interests. So that's the argument that she's going to make. But as you say, the problem is that the withdrawal agreement is a legally binding document. It's going to be a treaty between Britain and the European Union, whereas the political declaration is an aspirational text.
and the details of that will have to be negotiated after Britain leaves the European Union next March. And as Paddy mentioned there, Dennis, it's confirmed now that she will travel to Brussels tomorrow to meet the European Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker. Um, Does that mean that essentially this deal is almost done, I mean, the, the political declaration? Well, no. Number 10 insists that that's not the case, that uh, she will go there tomorrow, the meeting for 90 minutes in the late afternoon. And then uh, they're not expecting to have a press conference. They don't expect that they're going to shake hands on a deal as they did, for example, last December on the joint report, which uh, brought in the whole idea of the backstop for Northern Ireland. That it's actually just a staging post on the way to the end of the negotiations. And there's a, a meeting of EU leaders on Sunday, uh, and Theresa May will go to Brussels to meet them. They first of all meet among themselves, the 27, and then she joins them. And Downing Street has kept open the, the idea that there could actually be negotiations going on during the day on Sunday, which is something that uh, from the EU side they're saying that this is not going to be a negotiating event. They're expecting everything to be done and dusted. But maybe for domestic political consumption, Downing Street is insisting that this is going to kind of go right down to the wire and nothing is done just yet. And I think it probably will look better for uh, Theresa May if the deal doesn't appear to be done in the middle of the week, but maybe goes on a bit later. And, and, and Paddy, we hear a lot um, about then the, the problems that Theresa May has in convincing her side of the merits of the, the withdrawal deal and now moving on to the political declaration. What about on the EU side? Are concerns emerging among some of the member states about uh, some of what's emerging in, in these talks? Um, there, there are concerns um, on two sorts of levels. One, for example, on, on, on uh, the Spanish have problems with the language on, on Gibraltar. Um, they are very determined to ensure that the final political declaration makes clear that any future arrangement will not necessarily involve uh, trade uh, relations uh, with with Gibraltar and that, that Gibraltar would not be covered by it. And then the other member states are also um, muttering a bit about the level of ambition uh, of the um, political de- declaration, particularly in, in relation to what, what's called level playing field issues. These are to do with competi- you know, the, not offering the UK competitive advantage uh, by lo- allowing them to lower their regulatory standards once they've left the European Union. And uh, a number of member states, led by the French, but also the Dutch and others, are, are being very firm uh, that the um, political declaration must uh, toughen up the language already proposed on uh, the the regulatory alignment. What has to be understood is that although um, British politicians are very uh, um, uh, strongly object to to the customs union proposal in the withdrawal agreement, uh, any customs union uh, arrangement, any customs arrangement in the uh, final relationship will also have to involve a degree of regulatory alignment. And, and so it may not be called a customs union. Um, in, in any, if they want a final deal, they'll have to do something which is certainly equivalent of, of that. And that has got to be dressed up in such a way uh, that it doesn't frighten the horses in London. And I know I mean, yeah, Theresa May prefers to call it, I think, is it a customs facilitation arrangement or something along, along those lines. But w- w- will one of the key things ultimately be whether Britain is allowed to do its own trade deals while remaining in some kind of customs arrangement with the EU? Is that likely to be one of the sort of b- breaking points ultimately? 
Either I of think you. that Paddy. Um, my, my understanding is that there is an understanding that uh, Britain will be able to carry out its own trade deals. But those trade deals will be severely circumscribed by the rules of the the, the common market that the EU and UK eventually established together. Uh, so uh, both sides will be able to say we're, we're, we're reassured. And, and Paddy, just to explain one little, maybe it's a, a, a technical point really, um, you mentioned Spain there in Gibraltar, and Spain in particular has said it may not support the withdrawal so deal if its concerns in Gibraltar the, aren't the addressed. Could of, Spain, of peace, sorry, could uh, Spain block the withdrawal deal? Yes, uh, this is a, this is uh, done by unanimity, and therefore they have the the right to do that. It has to be said that that the uh, Gibraltar issue is a very politically sensitive issue in uh, Spain. And many people here think that the saber rattling by uh, Sanchez, the Spanish prime minister, is more to do with domestic I- interests and that he will uh, step in line uh, on, on Sunday. It's also clear that he won't be able to amend the withdrawal agreement. Uh, he may affect the shape of the political declaration. And, and, and Dennis, to come back to you, all of this is being played out against the backdrop of some of the greatest sort of drama and intrigue we've, we've witnessed in British politics for a long time and Theresa May has had a torrid time since she agreed the withdrawal deal last week um, I'm going to ask you in a moment actually about where she stands now uh, politically but I think it might be first worth first just taking one step back to remind people what was it about the withdrawal deal that uh, made her so unpopular really across the political spectrum what do people in Britain not like about this deal? What they did, there were a few things they didn't like. One was that they uh, it was that this backstop, which was supposed to guarantee that there would be no hard border in Ireland. Uh, the uh, the British government decided that instead of having some kind of Northern Ireland specific arrangement, which is what the European Union had proposed, which was basically that Northern Ireland alone would remain aligned with the single market and the customs union after Britain left. Uh, under pressure partly from the DUP, who are supporting Mrs May in government, and partly from uh, Conservatives, who are also unionists, uh, the government said, no, we'll have, let's have a, an all-UK backstop. And this basically keeps the uh, the whole of the United Kingdom inside a customs union with um, the, the European Union uh, until such time as, as some other means is found to ensure that there's no hard border. And that, as far as the Eurosceptics is concerned was what they call vassalage. They were saying, look, we're going to be following their rules and we're not going to have any say in uh, determining what those rules are. And to make matters worse, uh, Britain can't unilaterally decide just to leave this backstop arrangement, that uh, you know, that this has to be done by mutual agreement with the European Union. So that was uh, something that uh, annoyed a lot of the Brexiteers. The other thing which annoyed them was that although there's this all-UK uh, backstop arrangement, there will still be some specific arrangements for Northern Ireland, so that Northern Ireland will be more closely aligned again with the European Union than the rest of the United Kingdom. So what the unionists and the, the Brexiteers have been saying is that not only are you tying everybody into uh, these EU rules, uh, perhaps indefinitely, but you're also not avoiding a hard border or some kind of new uh, regulatory border in the Irish Sea. And so you're breaking up the United Kingdom and all of this is unacceptable. So that's basically the, the main objections they had to and then the, the political ramifications for her. I mean, a few days ago, the big question seemed to be not even so much could she get this deal approved, but could she survive in, in office for, for even the, the, the coming sort of next few days. Now, 
there was a lot of expectation there might be a leadership challenge on Monday. It hasn't materialised. So has she seen her detractors in the Conservative Party off at this stage? She has for the moment. Uh, so you've had this uh, kind of... Um, gang who shouldn't, couldn't shoot straight uh, routine going on with the European research group of uh, backbench Brexiteers. And they announced that they were going to get this uh, these 48 signatures you need to trigger a confidence vote in her leadership. And uh, on Thursday, Jacob Rees-Mogg announced with a flourish that he was going to send a letter in. And uh, the expectation was that by the end of Friday that uh, they were going to have the letters. And when the 48 letters hadn't appeared by the end of Friday, they said, well, don't worry. It's just that some MPs are going to go back to their constituencies and they want to, just out of courtesy, they want to talk to their constituency chairman and vice chairman and all the rest of it. But they'll be back on Monday morning. Don't you worry. Well, Monday morning came and went, as indeed Monday evening, as indeed now is Tuesday morning. And now on Tuesday morning, the um, uh, the, the leading Brexiteers have said, well, we may not get these 48 signatures just yet. And so the moment of truth may not come until after uh, this vote, uh, this deal goes to the vote in the House of Commons. And then if Theresa May uh, loses the vote, in other words, if the Commons rejects this deal, that then maybe we'll get the 48 signatures, signatures in to try to topple her. But they've ended up looking really quite uh, incompetent and foolish. And so that has strengthened Theresa May's position. And you've also had uh, the spectacle of these five uh, r remaining um, Brexiteers in the cabinet, uh, led by Andrea Leadsom and including Michael Gove and one or two others, who were uh, trumpeting or signalling or leaking or whispering that they were going to meet for breakfast on Monday morning and that they were going to come up with a new proposal to demand that uh, Theresa May should renegotiate the terms under which Britain would be able to exit the backstop in the withdrawal agreement. Well, on Monday morning, suddenly they found none of them had any appetite for breakfast at all, and they didn't meet. And they not only didn't meet, but they also don't seem to have put in this demand because Theresa May has made clear that the text of the withdrawal agreement is now closed, that they're not going to be able to uh, renegotiate any part of it. And so they've gone quiet. So on the face of it, certainly the immediate threat to Theresa May's leadership of the Conservative Party does appear to have, be, have receded. The question of whether she's going to be able to get this deal through Parliament is, of course, another one. And and and, and absolutely not asking for a prediction on that. But where do you think, in terms of the the swingometer, if you like, the likelihood of her getting it through Parliament? Where does that that stand now? Well, I as would of ask now, him for a, I would ask him for a prediction. Well, as of now, <laughs> we, we, as we're of above now, predictions, Paddy, on, on this podcast. Sorry, Dennis. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. As of now, uh, if you look at for, uh, the public statements of Conservative MPs and of Labour and of the DUP, it would look like uh, Theresa May does not have a majority uh, to get this through the House of Commons because you've got uh, a, a fairly large number of Eurosceptics who say they're going to vote against it. Now, that number could be as high as 40 or 60, or it could be as low as 20. Uh, 20 would be a very low estimate of it. The DUP's 10 MPs uh, have indicated that they're going to vote against it. They haven't actually explicitly said they're going to vote against it, but they said they couldn't possibly accept it and it would break up the union and it would be the worst thing that could ever happen. And so they're not likely to vote in favour of it. And then uh, Labour has said it's going to vote against it. And the number, and, and the question is, how many Labour rebels can you get? 
to counteract all these Tory rebels, because you also then have another group of pro-European conservatives who include people like Dominic Grieve and Anna Soubry and Joe Johnson, who recently resigned as transport minister, and they're going to vote against the deal, or so they say. So on the face of it right now, it's hard to see how she can get this deal through. And so I think that what you're watching now over the next few days and what you'll see over the next few weeks is uh, in these this next phase, the next few days of the negotiations, Theresa May seeing if she can find or create through the negotiations some ladders for some of these Brexiteers to climb down. So can you give these people some excuse to vote for the deal? And an example of that is that a, a deputation of hardcore Brexiteers, including Owen Patterson, former Northern Ireland Secretary, and Ian Duncan Smith, and David Trimble, who's now a Conservative member of the House of Lords, they went up and they saw Theresa May and they demand, they asked for some uh, alternative to the backstop. Could she not consider using technology to ensure that the Irish border should be kept open? And Theresa May pointed out to them, and Downing Street has been suggesting today, that uh, the withdrawal agreement does actually contain a phrase where they said that you could look at alternative arrangements for ensuring the border is kept open, which would replace the backstop. And that actually refers back to something in the joint report of December, where it said that you could avoid the hard border either through uh, the free trade agreement, whatever arrangement you're going to have, that should in itself uh, sort it out, or that you could have some specific arrangements for the border between Britain, Ireland, Northern Ireland, that would be able to do it. And that's kind of to do with technology, or you could have the backstop. And so they're now pushing this out, that's the idea that actually technology could be a solution. Now, there's a problem with this technology in that it doesn't actually exist. And the other problem, of course, is that any of these alternative arrangements would have to be uh, agreed with the European Union, which includes obviously Ireland. So in other words, that the UK government wouldn't be able to unilaterally say we have now found this technological solution. And so we're, we're getting out of the backstop. But still, uh, Ian Duncan Smith and company left Downing Street after meeting Mrs. May, sounding quite appeased. And so the question is, can you, through all these stratagems, find ways where you can pick off a few of these rebels, reduce the, uh, you know, the the size of the conservative Brexiteer rebellion, maybe frighten some of the remainers into voting for the deal uh, by uh, with the prospect of a no-deal Brexit and the consequences of that. And maybe even with the DUP, persuade them, even if they can't vote for the deal, maybe they'll abstain on the vote rather than voting against it. So in all of these ways, she could possibly find some narrow way through. The other option, which a lot of people are talking about, is that you would lose the vote on the first vote. So it go through, it would be defeated. But that then maybe in January, uh, she comes back, uh, probably with the same deal, really, uh, because the Europeans are not likely to want to make any major changes to it. And then, uh, you know, having seen the markets go insane or having, you know, uh, frightened people, then that, that people suddenly in the second vote, more Labour people will decide to vote for it or and more and fewer rebels in the Conservative Party will vote against it. And so that if she doesn't get it through the first time, she gets it through the second time. But having said all of that, on the face of it right now, it doesn't look like she has the numbers. Um, but I think, but I suppose, Dennis, what we're, we're learning is to, to um, graduate slowly, is not true, is to underestimate Mrs May at our peril. Listen, before I um, go back to Paddy and ask him for a prediction, I just wanted to get 
briefly your take on, on the, the significance of the DUP vote last night. People will know that on Monday night, the DUP, which is the party upon which Mrs May relies, um, uh, relies on their, their votes in Parliament to keep her government in place, they abstained on a number of uh, budget votes, a kind of a warning shot across the bows for the for the government. But um, how significant is that? I mean, there's a confidence and supply arrangement there between the DUP and the government, but there can't be very much confidence left after that vote, those votes last night. Yes, well, the confidence and supply uh, arrangement, it states that the DUP will support the government on budget votes and finance bills. And the DUP on Monday night did not support the government on, uh, on a finance bill. And that, on the face of it, would be in breach of the uh, confidence and supply arrangement. Now, the DUP are saying, well, we didn't vote against you. We abstained. It was just a warning shot. And so we haven't, strictly speaking, broken our confidence and supply arrangement. And the government uh, is not inclined to rush out and say, yes, this confidence and supply arrangement is over, because there's nothing in it for them to do that. As far as they're concerned, it's better to go along with this fiction that the thing is still going on, on the off chance that you can possibly still get something out of the DUP, either in terms of this vote or not. And obviously, if the DUP votes against the the government on the meaningful vote on the EU withdrawal uh, agreement, then that would be a very clear breach of the confidence and supply arrangement, and you would think that that is the end of it. But having said that, because uh, of the fact that you've got this fixed-term parliaments act, it's very hard for anybody to bring down the government. So even uh, if the DUP decide they're never going to vote with the government again, and the confidence supply agreement is over, the fact is that um, the only way you can get rid of the government is through a confidence vote, uh, which uh, you know the uh, the DUP could very well uh, vote with the government on, or you could uh, try to trigger a, a general election but then the Conservative MPs are not going to vote in favour of a general election, so that's not going to work either. So there's a complicated arrangement in a way that it wouldn't have been a number of years ago before this Fixed-Term Parliaments Act. But for the moment, it suits both the DUP and the Conservative Party to maintain the fiction that the confidence and supply arrangement is intact, despite the fact that the DUP quite clearly breached it on Monday night. OK. Um, and, uh, Paddy, I'm going to conclude with you. We've already maybe got a take from Dennis on what may happen on Sunday at the EU summit, and it sounds like Mrs May might be determined to go there and, and cause some trouble, at least for domestic consumption. What's the expectation in Brussels about the summit on Sunday? What do we expect this to achieve, if you like? Well, the schedule for the summit is very short, very tight. Um, two one-hour sessions, uh, and an expectation that basically it will rubber, rubber stamp the text that will have been agreed uh, between the, the member states and, and the UK beforehand. And, and so that there isn't any expectation um, of a major row or extending the, the process. They're actually scheduling a press conference for 12 o'clock on, on Sunday morning, expecting the whole thing to be done and dusted by then. Okay. Well, we'll see. And actually, Dennis, I did say finally, but just um, providing the summit then everything goes to plan on Sunday, is there an indicative date yet for the for the vote in Parliament um, on the deal? Are we still looking at around December the 10th? Is that, is that the kind of timetable? We were talking about December the 10th uh, as a possible time. I mean, certainly, they'd be able to have a few days of debate for that. But there was recently some suggestion, like in the last 24 hours, that 
maybe they'd actually have a more extended debate and that they'd have two weeks of debate rather than uh, one, which would obviously put the thing back uh, a few days further. Uh, and you'd still, uh, the idea would be you'd still get the thing, the, the vote happening uh, before Christmas. And uh, there's, you know, so so it's either going to be around the 10th or a little bit after that, uh, if all goes well. And then uh, if the vote goes through, that's that. If it doesn't, then there is a, a, a date with destiny on the 21st of January when uh, the government has to come back to the House of Commons and tell the Commons what it's going to do next if it doesn't actually have a deal. And that's when all kinds of interesting things could happen with regard to either trying to do, do the vote again or pushing for a second referendum or a general election or all kinds of things. OK. Dennis Taunton in London and Patrick Smith in Brussels. Thank you both very much. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. In my life, I have been both a hawk and a dove, depending on the circumstances. As a hawk, That's the voice of the former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, speaking last Friday in Tipperary Town, where he was the recipient of the Tipperary International Peace Award. What should we do there, dear friends, to combat this phenomenon of dehumanization that makes a career in some parts of the world. The award was given to Mr. Santos in recognition of his efforts in bringing peace to Colombia and for the historic agreement that put an end to more than 50 years of fighting by the FARC guerrilla army. David McKechnie, the Irish Times deputy foreign editor, was in Tipperary Town for the presentation of the award to Mr. Santos last Friday and he joins me now in studio. Dave, tell us something first about the Tipperary Peace Award. For people not familiar with it, it might seem slightly incongruous that a a former president of Colombia would make his way to a small town in in rural Ireland to pick up an award. But but he was following in some illustrious footsteps, wasn't he? It it is is a prestigious award. No, it is, absolutely. Um, It certainly was incongruous, I suppose, to see him on a kind of winter, a very harsh winter's day, uh, kind of entering this uh, old cinema building uh, in in the middle of Tipperary town. Uh, But, um, no, it's been going for Tipperary Peace Award's been gone for 34 years. Uh, the first one was awarded uh, posthumously to Sean McBride in, in 1984. And it takes on it takes a different date every time of year, or every year, sorry, uh, to suit the diary of the recipient to ensure they can attend. So over the years, there's been a serious roster of, of big names have actually shown up in Tipperary. Who are some of the previous uh, recipients? Of well, the previous recipients include John Kerry. So uh, people do tell stories now of, of the, 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 the amazing security lockdown in the region because uh, he was in office at the time. Uh, Ban Ki-moon, uh, Senator George Mitchell. Uh, strangely enough, these days, Rudy Giuliani won uh, won it also um, after 9-11. Post-9-11, okay. Yeah, exactly, when he was New York mayor. Um, uh, and Nelson Mandela uh, actually uh, was brought down to Tipperary just after he was released from prison uh, in 1990. So um, that's the one that one or two people spoke to me about most, which you can imagine the, the fuss uh, must have must have been around at the time. And, and who is Juan Manuel Santos? What, what, what was his role in bringing an end to the war between 
in Colombia between the state and the, and the FARC guerrilla movement? Well, yeah, he's the two-term two uh, president of Colombia. Um, and I suppose he was the driving force really behind behind the peace agreement uh, that ended, as you say, more than 50 years of war. Um, he described himself in his speech as a hawk who became a dove. Uh, and he spoke of one general who t- who taught him a lesson, told him th- this phrase that he should treat his he should treat people as his adversaries rather than his enemies. Um, and so that was kind of a theme of his speech, which was which was about sort of humanizing your your enemy or your adversary, as as he said, you should change it to. So um, so he was the driving force behind that. There was four years of peace talks in in um, Havana uh, with the FARC, remarkably successful, really, as as two years ago. Um, the peace deal was signed after a failed uh, referendum, but it was signed through Congress. Um, so it's, it's gone for two years now. So he's obviously got a huge reputation internationally. He won the Nobel he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016. A divisive figure in some ways in Colombia, but all political leaders are. Um, the country is very polarised on, on, on the peace agreement, so so that would be no surprise. And, and you managed to get a short interview with him, which um, I know wasn't easy because I think initially you were told that his schedule didn't allow it. And what kind of things did you want to explore with him? Yeah, well, I suppose coming coming right now, um, I wanted to look at really what what's happening in Colombia now because, uh, by all accounts, uh, the situation on the ground there is is worse than it was two years ago. Um, uh, when I suppose, um, I mean, it, the not, piece, notwithstanding the end of the the, the FARC. Um, yeah, exactly. War, yeah. I think two years ago maybe there was a bit more optimism around the peace deal, but but in the last, um, you know, social leaders have continued to be assassinated um, in the last couple of years around the country. Many of them dealing with. Land Land reform, or you know, who have interest in land reform, um, and you know, land reform is a key part of of the of the uh, peace agreement. Um, so I think there's more than 300 social leaders killed in in the start of, of 2016. At the same time, cocoa crop production has risen, continues to rise, uh, which is obviously uh, cocaine production, um, and also despite uh, you know some important clauses in in the peace agreement around that so um the other issue there at the moment is the ELN as well uh, which is the the remaining left wing guerrilla group uh, which peace talks have stalled with the government um and i suppose well many would say that one of the reasons for that is because there is a new government and it is a right wing government by uh, led by Ivan Ivan Duque, who was um, uh, who went into office in August, and uh, he's the fierce opponent of the peace deal. So I suppose the political will isn't really there in the country either at the moment. He's he's um, promised to make changes to it. Whether that actually comes about, who knows? I suppose the country remains polarized. There's plenty of dissidents around, and there's armed groups, and and obviously without the political will there as well. Uh, it's a challenging time, so I, I spoke to him a little bit about that. Now, everybody uh, recognises the, the huge achievement of, of the peace uh, agreement in Colombia, um, but also the, the huge challenges in implementing it. Um, we've seen quite a number of, of FARC dissidents, um, killings of social leaders, uh, and the expansion of armed groups. Uh, and of course, in addition to that, now we have a government that's hostile to the agreement uh, from the off. How does the agreement survive those respective forces? Well, first of all, this agreement is irreversible. There is no way to go back, uh, among other things, because the Constitutional Court made a ruling whereby for the next three presidential terms, there can be no law, no reform, no decree that goes against the compliance of the agreement. Second, um, you see that the agreement is uh, being 
complied with. The basic aspects of the agreement have already been fulfilled, completed. And uh, this is a very ambitious, probably the most comprehensive uh, agreement ever signed because it's the first one to be negotiated under the umbrella of the Rome Statute. And it's probably the first one to have such ambitious plans on the development of the regions that were affected by the conflict. We have had, of course, some problems, uh, dissidents uh, of the FARC, but the percentage is uh, below the average of what you see in other uh, peace agreements. There are always some dissidents who don't like to get into the into the uh, civil society and that they would prefer to continue uh, their violence, especially in a country where drug trafficking is so unfortunately important. Uh, and uh, the killings of the of the some of the social leaders are the product precisely of the success of the agreement because most of them have been um, killed by the Mexican drug cartels that are seeing that the uh, legal uh, crops that are substituting the illegal crops might uh, simply wipe out their raw materials uh, for drug trafficking. And so they are trying to kill these social leaders that are promoting this substitution of crops. Um, we and the, uh, the government is, is fighting that. They are, have been reduced substantially in the last uh, months. Uh, and there has been some delays which are normal in these type of complex uh, implementation of, of uh, such an ambitious peace agreement. But I, I am confident that this will continue. The government has sort of shifted their position. Um, right now, uh, the, state, the, the president said, uh, my successor, that he will then uh, support the implementation of the process. They even already approved the funding, they approved uh, the resources. Um, the special envoy of Europe, which is probably, which is precisely an Irish, um, Eamon Gilmore, uh, had a conversation with the government uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and they ratified that they will uh, follow through with the agreement. You mentioned uh, crop substitution there, obviously, and that the cocoa crop has continued to expand and during the, uh, the the discussions over the agreement and and since. Is that is that solvable? I mean, many people think that's the key to the agreement. Uh, uh, yes, using the cocoa crop. What we saw in the last uh, three years was a uh, sort of a perverse incentive that when we started talking about voluntary substitution, many of the peasants said, oh my God, there are going to be uh, some benefits if we plant coca and they plant it. And that's a fact, that's true. But it's the first time that we have a structural long-term solution, because before, never have we, were, have we been able to give the peasants an alternative, precisely because of the war, precisely because the FARC protected them. Now we can, and the FARC is helping the government in this substitution, uh, this year, 2018, um, at least 50,000 hectares will be voluntary substituted, plus the 70,000 that have been uh, forcefully eradicated. That's more than half of the total production. So we're on the right track, and I hope that the new government will continue this policy because it's the only way 
And um, modesty apart, I've been probably one of the Colombians that have fought drug trafficking more than any. It's the only way to really find a long-term solution. At the recent election campaign in Colombia, it was very bitterly fought. Uh, dis disinformation was, was rife uh, and uh, I suppose very strongly held opinions on each side for and against the peace agreement in particular. Now we've seen in the United States and, and elsewhere of course the impact of a polarised society. How do you make Colombian society less polarised? Um, how, do, how do you get the two sides to, to speak to one another? Well that's probably the most important question that the world uh, is uh, now confronted with. Uh, as you very well say, you, you see this in the United States, you see it in Europe, you see it in um, Latin America. Uh, nationalism, populism, polarization uh, is getting strength. Um, and uh, this is being fed, among other things, by the social media. Um, it's being fed uh, by migration. Um, and uh, we need to uh, start looking for ways to find, again, common denominators. For example, I am very surprised, negatively surprised, how little reaction the world had with the latest report of the panel of experts on climate change. This is a very serious problem that can only be solved if we work together, because we have to understand that we are one, one race, which is called humanity. If we don't uh, build uh, bridges and instead if we destroy them, we will all perish. And uh, I hope in, that on, not only in my country, but that in every place where this polarization is being uh, strengthened, that people are sensible enough to put dialogue and arguments in front of emotions and manipulation of sentiments like fear and hate, because that will only generate more violence. And your successor as president, Ivan Duque, um, who ca campaigned against the peace agreement, uh, took part in a forum for peace in Paris last weekend, obviously, um, as part of the armistice commemorations. Was that difficult for you to watch, um, given, given his, his, his long-term opposition in Colombia to, to that agreement? No, no. Uh, on the contrary, I was happy that he said that he was in favor of peace. And that's what we need. Um, I decided to, um, to uh, take a decision that I will not, uh, I'm going to bother my successor as I suffered in, <laughs> in my predecessor uh, attacking me for eight years. I think this is bad for the country. I think this was not good for anybody. And uh, President Duque can be assured that I will not intervene in any of his policies and that any way he wants me to help or if he needs me, I will be there because if he does well, the country does well. And that was David McKechnie talking to the former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, in Tipperary Town last week. Thanks again to David for that and to our earlier guests, Patrick Smith and Dennis Staunton. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.